Blog Talk Radio. Eastern Pilots Association. We share the stories and memories of the pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. My name is Neil Holland, retired Eastern Captain and producer of the show. We hope you will enjoy the stories we bring to you every Thursday at this time. And we hope you will enjoy and join in the conversation during the broadcast. Now, let's get the show in the air. Reaper 32, you're clear to start engines. Roger, uh, we're starting number one. Clear prop. Hey, You're cleared for takeoff. Roger, uh, Reaper 32. We're on the roll and requesting a straight out departure. That's approved, Reaper 32.
passengers have flown Eastern than any other airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day. sounds of the aircraft you just heard starting up, or simply stated, from the male wings to the huge Lockheed L-1011 TriStar, a.k.a. the Whisper Liner. You know, Eastern Airlines was the first to fly this three-engine, Rolls-Royce-powered, wide-bodied aircraft. As we like to tell our first-time listeners, you can listen in with your smartphone or go to our radio show provider at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Eddie at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and then just click on the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. or you will be given the message that the show has not begun. Better yet, why not listen as many do? Just call in to the show at 213 816 1611. This will put you on the producer's board, and all you have to do to share your comments or join in the discussion is to touch the number one on your smartphone's keyboard. That will tell the producer to unmute your phone's microphone. Then just join in. As we have mentioned in previous Reaper Radio show, uh, shows, we have added a new announcement to our Reaper Radio each week when we come when we become aware of our eastern pilots and or their spouses who once flew the skies of this great airline and have passed to the west on their final flight we pay honor to them uh, captain neil do we have any names to mention this week that have passed away no uh jim holder who's with us hello jim captain jim you yeah. with us Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I am here. Yeah, you didn't send any, and that's good news. Anytime you don't send yeah. us a, a, a yeah. notice, then we're happy about that. So uh, nothing to report, Don. Back to you. Well, thanks, guys. That's a good thing. It's always good. No notice is good news. We will make available this time on the radio show whenever we have an announcement. Now, let's head up to Long Island, New York, where Captain Mike Scott is at the controls. Mike? Yeah, thanks, Don. As we do each Thursday on the Reaper Radio Show, we bring you the stories as written and told to the editors of the retired Eastern Pilots Association magazine, Reaper T. Throughout uh, Reaper's nearly 50 years, it's these stories told by the men and the women of Eastern that have made the magazine tops among the airline retirees associations and newsletters and magazines. We have searched the pages of Reaperty to come up with today's stories. Harry, what do we have to start off our great uh, pilot stories today? Well, Captain Mike, among the stories selected for today's broadcast, you will learn about two men, 
one respected by new naval cadets and celebrities, and the other respected by our nation as a true American hero. Another great story our producer found is one of professionalism offered by one of Eastern's most fierce competitors. The last story will amaze even the most skilled aviators, looping a Connie. Well, instead of me giving away too much info, Mr. Producer, please give us the rest of the story. In the 2000 issue of Repartee, I had the pleasure of being the editor that year. Uh, the following article was inserted into the pages. The title is Trader John, Remembered by Aviators. Although not an Eastern pilot, many Eastern pilots knew this unusual man going through their naval flight training in Pensacola, Florida. The following appeared in the Pensacola Times Union, February 20th, by the Associated Press. Martin Weissman, better known as Trader John, was never a pilot or in the Navy, but he was renowned among naval aviators for serving up cheer, loyalty, and friendship at his ramshackle bar. The proprietor of Trader John's was, for nearly half a century, died Friday at Sacred Heart Hospital. He was 84. He never fully recovered from a 1997 stroke that left him partly paralyzed and with impaired speech. The impish Weissman treated everyone with equal affection, from raw recruits to war, war heroes, astronauts, and celebrities, retired Vice Admiral Jack Fetterman said yesterday. He was a loving, caring guy who never said anything bad about anybody, Fetterman recalled. You talk about bonding and you talk about brotherhood and you talk about what naval aviation was all about. Trader kind of provided that foundation. Weissman was an honorary flight leader of the Blue Angels Precision Flying Team based at Pensacola Naval Air Station, and they would sometimes give him rides in their jets. It's natural to love guys who take chances, Weissman said in an interview with the New York Times four months before his stroke. You've got to earn their love, their friendship. Friends said Weissman's generosity to sailors down on their luck, his ability to remember patrons' names, and his constant smile were legendary. Whenever any of us tried or just were down in the dumps, or tired, whatever, if you went into traders, he was always somebody that could help bring you around, said retired Captain Greg Woolridge. Weissman's trademark was mismatched socks, offering a ridiculous, huge, and never collected for it reward if anyone ever caught him in a matching pair. His response to almost every question, beautiful, beautiful. The New York City native opened Trader John's in 1953 in an old brick building, once a ship chandlery on Pensacola's waterfront after serving in the Army and tending bar in Miami and Key West. His customers helped Weissman fill Trader John's with a wing and other pieces of aircraft, flight suits, crash helmets, dozens of model airplanes, and hundreds of photographs. In 1996, Weissman moved some of the memorabilia to an adjacent building that he turned into a Blue Angels Museum. 
The state recognized Weissman's role in naval aviation by placing a historic marker in front of Trader John's in 1992. Comedian Bob Hope, actors John Wayne, Ernest Borgnine, and Elizabeth Taylor, and England's Prince Andrew were among celebrities who visited Trader John's. Weissman appeared on one of Hope's television specials, and his bar was replaced as TJ's in the movie An Officer and a Gentleman. Cartoonist Jeff McNeely returned Weissman's hospitality by featuring Trader John's in a couple of his shoe, the cartoon strip. Weissman never returned to work after his stroke. His family kept the bar going until the late 1998 when it was closed and put up for sale. A group of Navy veterans has been raising money in an effort to purchase the bar, but Fetterman said it would never be the same. In my heart, I can't think of that bar without Trader, he said. He will always be remembered by every naval aviator that ever went through Pensacola. And I had the pleasure of sitting on a bar stool at Trader John's on many occasions. Uh, instead of drinking beer, I think I was drinking martinis. But um, <laughs> quite a place. Uh, I lived. I lived in Pensacola for about seven years, and between Trader John's and uh, McGuire's Irish uh, Steakhouse, uh, those were the two places I frequented. I don't know which one served the best martini. Both of them really, really did a good job. But Trader was an unusual character. I had the pleasure of meeting him, shaking his hand. And, and uh, that's about it. But, um, yeah, I remember the barber's chair that uh, there was a sign on it. I think John Wayne sat in this chair. I believe I still remember that sign. <laughs> but uh, quite an interesting yeah, individual. Never had the pleasure. <laughs> did, did you, did, do you guys remember an officer and gentleman, uh, TJ's? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The movie? Yeah. And uh, they they didn't say Trader John's. They just call it TJ's Bar. Yeah. But um, it was down at the end of Palafox in Pensacola. Yeah, quite a place. Okay, back to you. Whoever. Right. <laughs> okay, anyone going through flight training in Picola, as it's affectionately referred to by many, have had the occasion to water down at Trader's. After a rough day at the office, meaning sweating it out at the naval training in a naval training aircraft with a barking instructor, and we're not talking about water here. A most unusual man love by all coming through the through Pensacola. Now all of us have at one time or another, as a passenger or a crew member, flown into Chicago O'Hara International Airport, but you probably have never heard the story about Butch O'Hara. We're about to tell you, Mr. Producer. What do you have for us? The 2000 issue of Repartee carried a story. Uh, actually, two stories. Story one and story two. The first story reads, by the way, they're both related. The first story is titled, Airports Are Named After Such Men. World War II produced many heroes. One such man was Butch O'Hare. He was a fighter pilot assigned to an aircraft carrier in the South Pacific. One day, his entire squadron was sent on a mission. After he was airborne, 
He looked at his fuel gauge and realized that someone had forgotten to top off his fuel tank. He would not have enough fuel to complete his mission and get back to his ship. His flight leader told him to return to the carrier. Reluctantly, he dropped out of formation and headed back to the fleet. As he was returning to the mothership, he saw something that turned his blood cold. A squadron of Japanese Zeros was speeding its way toward the American fleet. The American fighters were gone on a sortie, and the fleet was all but defenseless. He couldn't reach his squadron and bring them back in time to save the fleet, nor could he warn the fleet of the approaching danger. There was only one thing to do. He must somehow divert them from the fleet. Laying aside all faults of personal safety, he dove into the formation of Japanese planes. Wing-mounted fifty calibers blazed as he charged in, attacking one surprised enemy plane and then another. Butch weaved in and out of the now-broken formation and fired at as many planes as possible until finally all his ammunition was spent. Undaunted, he continued the assault. He dove at the Zeros, trying to at least clip off a wing or a tail, in hopes of damaging as many enemy airplanes as possible and rendering them unfit to fly. He was desperate to do anything he could to keep them from reaching the American ships. Finally, the exhausted Japanese squadron took off in another direction. Deeply relieved, Butch O'Hare and his tattered fighter limped back to the carrier. Upon arrival, he reported in and related the events surrounding his return. The film from the camera mounted on his plane told the tale. It showed the extent of Butch's daring attempt to protect his fleet. He was recognized as a hero and given one of the nation's highest military honors. And today, O'Hare Airport in Chicago is named in tribute to the courage of this great man. Now, story number two. Some years earlier, there was a man in Chicago called Easy Eddie. At that time, Al Capone virtually owned the city. Capone wasn't famous for anything heroic. His exploits were anything but praiseworthy. He was, however, notorious for enmeshing the city of Chicago in everything from bootleg booze and prostitution to murder. Easy Eddie was Capone's lawyer, and for a good reason. He was very, very good. In fact, his skill at legal maneuvering kept Capone out of jail for a long time. To show his appreciation, Capone paid him very well. Not only was the money big, but Eddie got special dividends. For instance, he and his family occupied a fenced-in mansion with live-in help and all the conveniences of the day. The estate was so large that it filled an entire Chicago city block. Yes, Eddie lived the high life of the Chicago mob and gave little consideration to the atrocity that went on around him. Eddie did have one soft spot, though, however. He had a son that he loved dearly. Eddie saw to it that his young son had the best of everything, clothes, cars, and a good education. Nothing was withheld. Price was no object. 
And, despite his involvement with organized crime, Eddie even tried to teach him right from wrong. Yes, Eddie tried to teach his son to rise above his own sordid life. He wanted him to be a better man than he was. Yet, with all his wealth and influence, there were two things that Eddie couldn't give his son. Two things that Eddie sacrificed to the Capone mob that he could not pass on to his beloved son. A good name and a good example. One day, Easy Eddie reached a difficult decision. Offering his son a good name was far more important than all the riches he could lavish on him. He had to rectify all the wrong he had done. He would go to the authorities and tell the truth about Scarface Al Capone. He would try to clean up his tarnished name and offer his son some semblance of integrity. To do this, he must testify against the mob, and he knew that the cost would be great. But more than anything, he wanted to be an example to his son. He wanted to do his best to make restoration and hopefully have a good name to leave his son. So he testified. Within the year, Easy Eddie's life ended in a blaze of gunfire on a lonely Chicago street. He had given his son the greatest gift he had to offer at the greatest price he could ever pay. You're probably thinking, what do these two stories have to do with one another? Well, you see, Butch O'Hara was Easy Eddie's son. Michael Fricano, Colonel, United States Air Force, Commander, AMC Studies and Analysis Flight. And it was, and now you know the rest of the story. You guys had heard that story before, I think, huh? Uh, I'm not sure I had. Yeah. Easy, Eddie. Well, the uh, I know. At one of the airports, I was thinking it was Midway, but maybe it is O'Hare. They have yeah. a tribute and uh, that information about Butch O'Hare. Uh, I was thinking his dad was uh, an accountant for the mob, but I don't know. But anyway, there is some information in those airports. Yeah. yeah it's, and, it's Kennedy, and they, I mean, it's O'Hare, and they got a great big photograph. At least I guess it's still yeah, there. Yeah, I can remember that, Jim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. Very interesting. Well, anyone working for Eastern knew who we were referring to when we said Brand X. In most cases, it was meant with respect and in good humor about our fiercest competitor, Delta Airlines. And boy, that was a competition back in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. However, this next story is about another competitor. We'll let the story do the explaining. It's called No Weather Radar. Another story from the 2000 issue of Repartee. This one was written by Rusty Diagardi. It's titled Brotherhood of Airmen. It was a clear Sunday morning in Miami during the spring of the early 60s. Our crew, all present and preparing for our scheduled return flight to LaGuardia Airport in a constellation with a stop in Jacksonville, Florida. Weather reported heavy thunderstorms along the route. Leaving Miami, the radar worked fine until we got close to Jacksonville. Uh, 
Suddenly, our radar became erratic and ceased to function. Our landing at Jacksonville was normal, and at the gate, and while passengers and baggage were being transmo uh, transmoved, we worked feverishly to get our radar to operate as it was a no-go item. Radar maintenance at Jacksonville was nil. Departure time getting close, however, we recall earlier, while en route, the controllers were commenting how they were observing the numerous thunderstorms on their radar screen. Now the big question at departure time, what do we do? We knew the controllers had good radar reception. That was our ace. Knowing we could get good radar coverage along our route while in the Jacksonville area, then switch over to the controllers in the following area, that should comply with the FAA rules, even though we stretch the rules to the brink of the law. While en route and getting steers from the Jacks controllers, a National Airlines flight above us, pilot chimed in saying, Hey, Eastern, we're en route to Newark. We'll give you steers if you like. Our radar is working fine. We accepted, thanked the controllers, and then joined National. Sure enough, their steers were perfect all the way to Wilmington, North Carolina, where all was clear, and we saw the National DC-6 above and a little ahead of us. We thanked them for their perfect steers and went our different ways. Without a doubt, Eastern and National were heavy competitors, but this incident proved pilots are one of a kind. To this day, I often wondered who where and how I can thank that wonderful crew. Possibly Captain Bob Patton, national editors of the Buccaneers publication, could pass along our thanks. And Jim Holder, I had the pleasure of working with Bob Patton uh, in put, trying to put together an air museum. He was quite a, quite mm -hmm. a nice guy. I, I didn't ask him about that particular story, but... Uh, Bob uh, uh, used to get. Uh, you probably sent him a magazine or two, also. Uh, I National think Airlines. they're very early on when I took over. Yeah, I did. yeah, yeah. Really a nice guy. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, you yeah. had uh, you had you had mentioned Rusty Diogardi in that one there, and he yeah, was Rusty, uh, yeah. pilots with uh, with my dad over at TWA in 1940 before oh, they came to Eastern. <laughs> yeah. I flew with Rusty. That boy, I love that guy. He was a great pilot. Yeah, great he lived with. in retirement. I think he lived here in the Jacks area, over at Fleet Landing, um, in Jack, over at um, the, the beach. Yeah, mm -hmm. really a nice guy. Super nice guy. Super nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, you would have to see our next story to believe it. I still can't visualize a constellation on its back in the air, or anywhere else for that matter. But listen to the guy who tells the story. <laughs> he, 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 he was in the Connie at the time. Here's how the story goes. Captain Neal, you got that? Yeah, now, uh, Jim, you might not believe this, but uh, see if you can follow. Well, it, well, we'll let the story do the talking. I'll do the talk. Okay. okay. Fly It Like a Cub by John McCulloch in the 2001 issue of Repartee. After joining Eastern in 1956, I immediately began checking out on new pieces of equipment. 
In a short while, I was current on the Martin 404, Convair 340, and 440, DC-4, DC-7, all the different models of the Constellation. I was flying them all. I even flew a DC-6 that we had leased from someone. The Convair 340 I flew was on an interchange we had with Braniff. In one sequence of trips, totaling 13 consecutive days of flying, I flew these aircraft in this order, 1049C, 1049, 404, 440, DC-6, DC-7, 404, 440, 1049C, 1049C, DC-6, DC-7, 1049C. Of course, getting checked out in that many air different birds meant lots of training rides, and sometimes those can be exciting. Captain Larry Carlisle was my instructor on the Connie. We were shooting landings on 9 left at Miami. Evidently, there was a cold front about to come through because the wind was right out of the south and blowing pretty good. Most of my flying in the Air Force had been on the F-84, it had a wide, strong gear that made crosswind landing simple. You just flew the thing down to the runway in a crab and let it go on that way. Let it go on that way. You might try to kick it straight, but it didn't seem to make much difference. It would straighten up all by itself and roll out with no problem. At this time, I was flying the Martin 404 and DC-4 on the line. But I was still very inexperienced and had not run into this bad a crosswind. So I had my hands full with that big old constellation. Larry watched me for a few minutes and then gave me the best instruction I had ever had. He said, fly it like an old cub. Put the wing down with the ailerons and hold it straight with the rudder. Nobody had ever put it in such simple terms. It made it a piece of cake. Now, I know all of you hotshot pilots out there saying, hell, he should have learned that when he first started flying. And I did. But that had been over seven years before when I was flying the T-6. After that, I flew the F-84 for three years, which, as I said, was easy and a crosswind. Then were, there were three years with no flying, and now I'm checking out on multi-engine birds that were nothing at all like anything that I had ever flown before. And as I noted, no one had put it in such simple terms. I don't remember how many training rides I got in the Connie, but I'm sure it was only two or three. I will never forget the last landing, though. Larry said, You're okay. I'll make this last landing. We were about 20 miles west of Miami, and he told me to call for landing clearance, which I did. The tower cleared us to land, even though we were quite a ways out. Traffic was a whole lot lighter in those days. As I recall, we were about 2,000 feet, headed straight for 9 left, and still at cruising speed. The runway was coming up pretty fast. We were only about a couple of miles out from the end. I'm beginning to wonder, what the hell is he going to do? As the runway began to slide under our nose out of sight, he suddenly pulled that Connie straight up. Now, I mean straight up, as we were sliding to a halt. He called for the gear and full flaps. 
I reached over and put them down. That bird came to a stop and then started sliding backwards. I was too stunned to notice how high we got, but I would estimate close to 3,000 feet. He held the yoke back in his lap. He had eased the power off as we came to a stop. The nose now started coming down, swinging through the horizon and then on down to vertical and then past vertical. I remember looking straight up through the eyebrow windows and seeing the end of the runway overhead. We probably went to about 30 degrees past vertical on our backs when the nose started coming back. All this time he held the yoke back as the nose swung through the vertical. Again, he brought the throttles back and slowly and around seven or 800 feet, we were right in the slot for a normal landing. The tower said nothing, and I don't recall any conversation between Larry, myself, or the flight engineer. It was just as though it was an everyday, everyday occurrence. Doesn't everyone land the Connie that way? When Larry said, fly it like an old cub, he meant it, although I don't believe I would attempt that maneuver in a cub. I've told this story to many pilots. I'm sure a lot of them thought I was just telling a fantastic war story, but one I told to it to it to said that he had heard the same thing from someone else. He had also heard that Larry stopped doing it because it scared the hell out of him one day when the hydraulic pumps cap cavitated. For those of you who didn't fly the Connie, the elevator had a hydraulic boost, like power steering on your car. If the hydraulics failed, you had to disconnect the boost by a long lever on the floor near the bottom of the center pedestal. This would then leave you with an elevator control that had a straight mechanical hookup, but required two men and a boy to move, and far less travel on the elevator for the amount of movement um, of the yoke. Without hydraulics until you dis disconnected the boost, the elevator was pretty much locked up. Lucky for Larry, the pump stopped cavitating and restored power to the elevators before he ran out of ideas and altitude. By the way, I just talked to Larry a couple of days ago, May 18, 2002. He lives in Mount Dora, northwest of Orlando. He had just gotten home from the hospital that day, suffering from a crap, cracked rib or two that he had busted in a fall. We only talked a few minutes since he wasn't feeling too good, and I didn't get to discuss his aerial maneuvers in the Connie, but you can bet I will tell, I will, the next time we talk. If any of you happen to know Larry or talk to him, ask him about doing aerobatics in the Constellation. Jim Holder, you well, flew that, be. Connie. You, do you think you could uh, listen, do what Carlisle did? I, I flew the Connie in the military, and I flew the Connie at Eastern, and I think that's a bunch of crap we just heard. <laughs> I don't believe that one bit. Not one iota do I believe that. <laughs> well, even if it did, there must have been at least on that first attempt, uh, the co-pilot and the engineer 
It must have had some yeah. soiled seat covers on the. Uh... I would yeah. imagine so. That's, that's, that's the biggest bunch of hokey I ever heard. Yeah, yeah. that altitude. I don't think he could do that with an airplane that size. No, but you know, of course not. But you know, Jim, when we checked out on the 727 in Atlanta uh, as first officers, and we did the seat swapping bit and all that, right. we used to do mm-hmm. our training right there after about 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And we had that mm-hmm. uh, diagonal runway that uh, was there. It's no longer there now, of course. But uh, we used to use that as our training runway. Do you remember that? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Actually, and we I go did out... most of mine at Dallas-Fort Worth, you know, when uh, oh, I started that okay. up in 66. But I did yeah. some in Miami, though. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, in Atlanta. And uh, we'd go out there and do the stalls and falls and the steep turns and and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden they decided, hey, let's don't do it in the airplane anymore. We got a simulator that we can give them more problems than, than in the mm-hmm. airplane. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of, of loops, yeah. Speaking of loops, I guess you guys might have heard the story. If anybody, any of you guys know Ed Gillis from Eastern, he was around the same seniority as my dad. He he looped the DC three. And that no. was a true story, but I don't know what altitude he was at when he did that. And uh, I always remember hearing that story. I never got any real particulars on it. But then again, for uh, for Air Force guys or military, for that fact, uh, the uh, Air Force used to uh, they used to loop the B-47. Uh, if anybody's ever read about that, when they used to launch bombs, they would do a loop. Yeah. Whatever, right. it to a high speed, and it would put it up into wow. a climb, and then release a bomb, so that it had a an, a, a a curved trajectory, and then in the mm-hmm. forty seven would go on over into a loop. My and I, I never, when I first saw that on uh, on the internet, I couldn't really believe it, <laughs> but, but they were doing it. Huh. Yeah, like, it was more maneuverable. It, you know, you could get that thing going real fast too. That six inch, I think it had six engine jets, and uh, yeah, it, they did that, and they could toss that thing. Uh, I don't know, a long way, fifty, sixty yeah. miles or something. Yeah. <clears throat> well, well, Jim, don't you think that? Uh, don't you think if they had a good uh, flight engineer on that thing and really could top off the oil in the engines, that could be done. <laughs> we talked about the gooseneck. I think he was about probably busy. Fella, probably yeah. t- he was topping his underwear off at that time. <laughs> you know, oh we've had some great stories, and uh, I had in this particular issue uh, when I was the editor <clears throat> took over from Bill Malone and. Man, I tell you what, they were sending in, and I think I guess I requested anybody out there that has a story, please send it to me. I don't know what to put in this magazine. And I know what you mean. In this particular issue, man, I got a lot of stories. So we'll dig in there again on 2000 and 2001. Both uh, issues got a lot of stories. I remember you calling me up and saying, Jim, I need some ink. I need some ink. And I didn't know what the hell you were talking about. <laughs> you explained it to me one day. I'm starting to holler. I need some ink. I'm eating some yeah. ink to myself. <laughs> yeah. On the radio, that ink turns into airtime, dead airtime. We need some We need some live airtime. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. interesting stories. 
Any anything happening you guys want to talk about? We're into the Reaper chat area now. <laughs> no, we want to talk about what's going on in my life. That being, you know, deer camp and everything, and uh, and uh, we're coming up on the end of our first month, and we got a couple of more to go. And of course, all I've done is miss deer or don't see it, and the few I see, I miss. But you know, uh, that's just the way it goes. You know, I was invited to join the the deer club there by Gib Garing. I think it was Gib. Mm-hmm. He was a member, yeah. wasn't he, in Sid Lanier. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, they both, um, Sid Lanier is still down there, too. He's uh, 90, 98, and uh, he's in a deer stand the other day. Yeah, his son, oh my Gary, God. Uh, takes care of him, brings him over there. And he bought a tent in 1964 or something like that. And he yeah. and Gary's put that big tent up. They bring all their cousins and stuff in, and it takes them all day to put the tent up. And and then that, <laughs> that that's where they stay, and it doesn't leak hardly at all. Yeah, Sid Lanier is still hunting, but he hunts like he's on the ground. He can't climb. <laughs> 98? <laughs> I mm-hmm. think that would limit yeah. how far. Climb a yeah. three-step three staircase would be a challenge. <laughs> yes, yes, did yeah. did any of you uh, hunters and fishermen ever belong to the uh, the Eastern Rod and Gun uh, Club? I know they had that way back. I don't remember what year it. Don, started, you did, but... didn't you? Didn't you, Don? No, no. I never heard of it. No, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Eddie Rickenbacker started that. Right. Oh, yeah. he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> it was getting the business people from New York to come down and. And go out fishing, and and I think they gave prizes or maybe trips or whatever. They did. Oh, yeah. It was a Miami thing. And Miami even, thing, yeah. Huh? yeah. The yeah. fishing boats that used to go out when it came to the fish, of course, uh, they 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 uh, certain boats were certified to. Uh, if you caught a, a fish that was of a certain size, they could certify it because they had a. Uh, like a chrome plaque that they used to put in there by Eastern Airlines, and it was, you know, signed by Eddie Rickenbacker. It was one of those embossed things, and they used to nail it inside the boat. I think I sent you guys a picture of that some years back. Yeah, that yeah. One, it, was a, it was a blank one that I, I got on eBay, and it was about uh, maybe uh, six or seven inches by about ten inches long, and it's very colorful with the uh, orange-red uh and uh, chrome thing on it that uh, said it was certified uh, boat to uh, to uh, give anybody there, you know, to to be applied for the uh, for the trophies for that uh, that Rickenbacker used to hand out. I got it. You know, speaking of fishing, um, on the Convair when I first was hired, I used to fly a trip called 687 down to Miami. It made all the stops from uh, Washington, D.C., where I was based, all the way down to Miami, and we had about a 30-hour layover. Then the next morning, <clears throat> we originated and went up to um, Vero Beach and made all the stops coming back to to Washington. And on this particular morning, didn't have anybody out of um, Miami going back to Vero, but in Vero Beach, we had uh, about two or three passengers and I don't know who I was flying with. I might look up my logbook because an interesting fella got on board, and we took him to Jacksonville where he transferred to a, another eastern airplane. And um, 
and that guy was Ted Williams. Ooh. And and Ted, Ted Williams, Williams had, yeah, Ted Williams, and he had his fishing rods, and I think at that time he was representing fishing gear for Sears. Sears, I'm not sure, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, the 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 most uh, pleasant thing was that when the captain and I went in to have a lunch or breakfast, late breakfast, I think it was, he was sitting there by himself, and he says, "Come on over, guys, and join me." And uh, we did, and we sat there, and we chatted, and mostly about fishing. I wanted to talk a little bit about baseball, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, but that was an interesting, um, interesting trip. Ted Williams, he was uh, the, the astronaut, the, one of the astronauts. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, John Glenn. When John Glenn was in the Navy, Ted Williams was uh, part of the story. Was Ted Williams was uh, was John Glenn's wingman? Oh. Somewhere I read that. Well, Ted Williams was a Marine pilot, wasn't he? And John Glenn was too. Well, Navy, Marine, whatever. However, that worked Mm -hmm. out. But he uh, he turned out to be somewhere I read that he was uh, had been used uh, to fly Corsairs. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think uh, yeah, Corsairs or Bearcats or whatever they had there. Well, you talk about John Glenn. Did I? Did I ever tell you the story about meeting John Glenn, Neil? Yeah, I met him too, but go ahead and tell your story. Well, it's when Michael and his crew got the McKay Trophy for rescuing oh, yeah. those yeah. 11 guys on top of the mountain in Afghanistan in the snowstorm. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. well, they had the McKay Trophy up there in Washington at Crystal City or somewhere in their big hotel, and we went there. And John Glenn came in, and, of course, Michael was nervous as all get out about getting up, being the aircraft commander, receiving the trophy with his crew standing behind him. And he said, my God, John Glenn's here. I'm really nervous about anything. But I went over after the service, you know, and we were all standing around, and I talked to him. And I said, uh, uh, Mr. Glenn, you know, the biggest thing I remember about you is when you flew across the United States in about three hours or some some, some tremendous speed in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a Crusader. I think it was a Crusader. And uh, F eight, and uh, and how you know that that he's man, he's just like he lit up because everybody always wants to talk about being an astronaut and going up and <laughs> around the earth and everything. And here I'm talking about his speed record that he made from coast to coast. And it's just yeah. like he's so just man, he that's all he wants to talk about, and that's all I want to talk about too. Is I just he said nobody ever ever asked me that question. You know? <laughs> well, I'm going to tell my story once again. You guys. I've told it before, and uh, my partner, my late partner, John John Corny, and I uh, had a flight school at, at Charlie Brown Atlanta Airport, Fulton County Airport, back in those days. And uh, <clears throat> we had a ground school. We taught ground school, taught a lot of Eastern pilots for their ATPs, ATRs, we used to call them back in the day. And <clears throat> I was uh, just put a, put on out of the conveyor and got on the Electra as a as a flight engineer. And we had a trip to Houston, Texas, and a Hobby Airport. I'll never forget, the Electra was parked out there, went into operations, and watched the passengers as they boarded the airplane from their gate. I watched them from the operations, and here comes John Glenn walking to mm-hmm. our airplane. And so mm-hmm. I decided I'm going to do something to see if I can get him to sign a signature, you know, one of these uh, so, uh, celebrity type of signatures, but instead I put 
we I couldn't do it without Georgia Flyers. That was the name of our school in Atlanta. I couldn't mm-hmm. I couldn't have done it without Georgia Flyers. And so sure enough, he signed that. We had that in our office for I don't know how long. It was uh, on a little dolly, you know, those mm-hmm. dolly you put on the trays. But he signed it. <laughs> I couldn't have done it without. Yeah. He learned to fly the crusader at Georgia Flyers, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, anyhow, time's getting on here. So, Don, what do you yep. got for us? Well, guys, uh, again, for our listeners, here's how you can read any or nearly 50 years of amazing magazine stories. Just go to Reaper's web lo- website, www.reaperonline.com and click on the repartee at the menu bar. Uh, Captain Jerry Frost, treasurer of Reaper, has scanned in every issue of the newsletters and magazines over the history of the organization. Just go through the years and turn the pages to the one-of-a-kind repartee newsletter, better known as repartee. As mentioned earlier in the earlier program, our webmaster, uh, Dorothy Gagnon has placed the link on our radio website. So you can just go to www.ealradioshow.com and you can pull that information out. There's a, uh, there's a lot of good uh, good stuff in there. I've been looking at some of it lately myself. Believe it or not. Neil? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. When I forget to turn my mute button back on, I, I talk a little bit better. <laughs> so they're talking to us. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks, Don. You know, I've asked all our hosts to send me their favorite song to be played when we take requests from our hosts and listeners. And so join us to see what we're playing in our musical minds through the years. What's your all-time favorite song? Send it to us and at host at EALradioshow.com. That's the simple one, host at EALradioshow.com, and we'll play it during one of our future broadcasts. This ought to be interesting Monday night because we've got some great, great songs that seem to be favorites, and there's some good stories. I think, Jim, you got a good story behind the one you chose, and I might oh, sneak in that Lord second dear. one, too. I might even sneak in that second one because it has a lot of meaning uh, as I played it and uh, is that, listened. This coming Monday, is that what you're saying? That's yeah. What it's gonna be? yeah. Yeah. Well, I may have to call you from Deer Camp, but I'll do yeah, it. Yeah, call us from Deer Camp and and uh, have mm-hmm. a few Maker's Marks, and you'll be right in there. Yes, Lord. <laughs> I might start singing myself. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, that's November 16th, 7 p.m., and okay. one of our hosts, Colleen DeFelice, is having surgery tomorrow, and uh, she's at the Tampa General Hospital, and we wish her lots of success and uh, full recovery from the surgery she's having, and uh, we wish you well, Colleen. Yeah. Thanks so yeah. much for being That's a host a with us. I've been through that twice. And, yeah. It's a long not a, problem. Not an easy thing. 
Yeah. Well, Don, how about take us out of here? Well, okay. It was a good show, Neil. Uh, we'll see you folks again next week, same time, when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee, as printed in the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association and other publications. And by the way, if you haven't visited our website, www.ealradioshow.com, you'll find many more Great Eastern stories and memories. So it's time to say goodbye. So on behalf of all of our hosts and our producer, Captain Neil, this is Don Gagnon saying so long to our Eastern family. We love you, Eastern. So long, Harry, Mike. See you guys. Uh, Jim, all of you guys. Did I miss somebody? And I think Michael Zoll, you're still there. Take care. See you next week. Goodbye. Hour and seven Good minutes to happy hour. Okay. Well, let's hear a little Merle Haggard. Silver wings shining in the sun.